Hey there, boys and girls. It's Ralph Garman, and you're listening to Talking Cod Swallop. Good choice. Hello, everybody. This is Ming Chen from AMC's Comic Book Man. You might know me from the Tell Him Steve Day podcast and the I Sell Comics podcast. Listen, I love podcasting. I love talking, but what I really love doing is talking cod swallow. Hey, I'm Alicia Witt. I'm Daniel Portman from Game of Thrones. I play Podrick Payne. I'm Ellipses, and you're listening to the talking... Okay, I'm Mark Bernard, and you're listening to the Talking Cod Swallow podcast. Hey, man, it's Kevin Smith, Silent Bob, whose voice you were never used to hearing in the 90s until I started opening it up, man. And that's because I'm a podcaster, and you're listening to a podcast, Talking Cod Swallow, right here, man. Hello and welcome to this week's Talking Codswallop. And on this week's episode, we have a wonderful guest with us. He's a comic book writer. He's also worked on television. He's also an editor and he is the writer behind one of my all-time favorite things, which is Transformers. Uh, And we are lucky enough this week to be joined by Simon Furman. So hello, Simon. Hi there. Nice. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for coming on. So my first question is, Simon, tell us a bit about yourself. How did, you know, what, how, where does the Simon Furman story begin? Well, I mean, I, I, I was born, well, I mean, back in 1961 in Sutton in Surrey and grew up, you know, with a voracious appetite for reading. So I was, you know, reading books, comics, anything I could get my hands on. You know, I grew up on a steady diet of British comics first you know, the humor titles and then the act boys action ones like mm-hmm. Iron and Smash and Tiger. And then pretty quickly graduated to Marvel Comics once I discovered the the Odom's reprints of those and then Marvel UK. So, you know, I quickly became a very big Marvel fan. And, you know, apart from a little gap in my teens when, uh, you know, there were other more important things to think about than comics, I've really been a fan all my life. (laughs) When you mentioned that you'd also been a fan all your life, what sort of comics did you gravitate to when you were younger as a a child? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I was definitely more keen on the the action adventure than the, Mm -hmm. you know, I loved strips like robot archie and the spider and and some you know some of the you know i like british comics because they were often darker or they were quite villain centric some of the strips so you know there was a lot to get hold of you know one of my favorite strips ran in lion and it was called the uncatchy title of watch out for the white eyes and it was a sort of battle (laughs) some strange gas that turned you know people into superhumans with white eyes and you know two plucky school kids there were always two plucky school kids <laughs> were kind of, you know on the ball with what was happening and trying to trying to thwart the evil ezra creech and you know this really fired my imagination and i absolutely you know sort of devoured comics in those days and and then like i say really once i discovered spider-man and you know it 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 sort of I gravitated much more more towards Marvel and and those kind of comics. Um, I, you know, I kept my eye on British comics, but largely after that, I was reading 
anything I get my hold of. I used to cycle round to, you know, a lot of the secondhand bookstores that used to exist mm-hmm. and popular book center plus books, these places that as well as old sort of dog-eared paperbacks had trays of co- American comics, which, you know, were a revelation to me, you know, the full color us format comic book and really from there i just you know got hold of whatever i could and i read a lot of the the alan class comics which reprinted all the sort of atlas era supernatural creepy sci-fi tales so you know i was i was a avid comic reader back in the day and it's so i mean it, it when you were talking about the the, the 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 white eye sort of comic, you're right when it's the sort of thing as a child, when it's something that has other children in it, you know, you kind of feel you can sort of relate to it more, certainly as a child, and it really does grab your attention. Um, so you obviously had the interest in sort of you know, reading comics, as most children sort of do. What was it you wanted to do as a child? Because I'm always interested to what people's initial sort of career choice was and how maybe does it stay the same and become what they, they became, they become as an adult or does it diverge in something completely different? Yeah, I mean, as a kid, I was fairly clueless about what I wanted to do. That almost seemed quite a way off. And, you know, when it suddenly became time to, oh, I need a career, that almost caught me on the hop, really. And mm-hmm. when I left school, I just went to work in a bank for a paying job. So, you know, mm-hmm. I was a sort of behind the scenes, you know, bod working in a bank. And, you know, I didn't love it. And in, I had half formed ideas. I would like to be a journalist, but I didn't have a degree. And most journalism jobs required a degree back in the day. So it was only by sheer chance that a friend of a family friend or a daughter of a family friend was working for IPC magazines up in uh, King's Reach Tower in London. And they would often advertise jobs internally. And Mm -hmm. they saw a job advertised uh, for a trainee journalist, you know, on the job training in their competitions department which because IPC magazines and comics, you know, had something like a sort of 80 to 100 titles yeah. a month, they had a centralized department for the, you know, winner car, winner, you know, model kit and everything yeah. between. So, you know, I was drafted in, I, you know, my interview amounted to, you know, show us you can compile a crossword or a word search or a something. And, and yeah, I was suddenly I had a foot in the door at IPC. And because I was the newest journalist in the department, I often got the comics division to deal with. I think the more senior members would rather be dealing with, I don't know, popular gardening, practical hi-fi or woman's own or whatever else. So it, it suited me fine because suddenly I was going over from lavington street which was where the competition department was you know about a five minute walk over to king's reach tower Mm -hmm. up to the 20 something floor and suddenly i'm in the offices of 2000 ad and eagle and you know roy of the rovers and tiger and you know it was just like wow you know i've 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 kind of all my childhood stuff is right here (laughs) 
<laughs> so you know, it was very exciting. And I got to know the editors and senior editors. So, you know, Barry Tomlinson, Gil Page, Steve McManus, you know, all these guys, I was just sort of going over and discussing competitions with them. And mm. that kind of really rebooted and rekindled my interest in comics generally. And I got back into it in a big way, having having gone away a bit at that point. And, yeah, you know, it was just from there, because I think I was around and about the comics division so much, eventually um, I was more or less headhunted for a new title they were launching called Scream. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's – and who, who would – so when you were headhunted for that – would you say in, in doing that, was there anybody that you thought, right, I'm going to use their influence on the way I'm writing? Is there anybody who, who impacted upon upon you, would you say? Yeah, I mean, certainly once I was ensconced in Scream and the editorial offices generally, I had access to scripts, which I hadn't really had before, you know, for both for Scream and often 2000 AD would just let me sit and read piles of John Wagner and Alan Grant dread strips. And, and, you know, I, and through that, I think I got the, the beat and flow of a comic script, you know, more or less just sitting there reading and seeing how, you know, John Wagner's dread scripts were very spare. He really Mm. did sort of, you know, put words that, you know, were unnecessary into his panel descriptions. You know, it's pretty much dread on bike, dread grimace, dread shoots. You know, I mean, it was really terse. And I thought, well, this is nice. I like that. I like the less is more approach. And so, you know, I'm not saying I did it straight away, but gradually when I started writing myself, I tried to put less into panel descriptions and leave more (laughs) scope for the artist to do their stuff. I think my first few scripts for Scream, which were all done more or less as a deadline thing, you know, we didn't have a a script. So I got drafted in was normally how it worked. And, you know, I would just gradually over the time, you know, the first few were probably overly wordy because I was just unsure myself about, you know, I wanted to put everything in and probably, you know, the artist just went, well, I can throw half of this out straight away. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I was the deadline crunch guy. So, you know, very quickly, we there was a strip called Terror of the Cats, which, you know, the management was just generally nervous about Scream at IPC. You know, they feared mm-hmm. another sort of action comics backlash, you know, like this was the video nasty era and we didn't really want to be the comic nasty. So, Management were very leery about sort of scream and what we could put in it. And for whatever reason, they didn't like Terror of the Cats. You know, maybe they thought it was just too in the home horror, you know. And yeah. and they basically said, we need this wrapped up as soon as possible. So two parts in, I jumped in with part three of Terror and the Cats at very late notice with a mandate to wrap it up in four episodes. So that was my first thing. Meanwhile, I was doing some library of death stories. And, you know, my first one was drawn by Steve Dillon. So, you know, you can't mm-hmm. ask for a better start. Than no. that. So, you know, I mean, I was very lucky. And, 
you know, Ian Rimmer, who was the editor on Scream, was a great sounding board. He was very experienced already and, you know, was very good with his advice on what I should be doing, shouldn't be doing. And so really over the course of Scream, even though it was only 15 issues and I probably did maybe eight or nine scripts, it really gave me a good sort of, you know, grounding in comics mm. on the job training, as it were. Well, for me, when I was a child, the person I wanted to be growing up, uh, it sits perfectly with just what's over your shoulder, and you had major influence on that. The person I wanted to be, the unfortunately I definitely couldn't have been, was Optimus Prime. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go, lofty ideals, it's good. <laughs> so, I, I, in relation to that, I have to ask the question of, how did you get into the Transformers? Well, there were a couple of hops and steps after Scream folded. Again, you know, there was there was a feeling that the management kind of would be more sleep easier if Scream wasn't coming out every week. And we hit an NUJ strike, uh, National Union of Journalists, that stopped every IPC title at the time. And so there was a gap of publication on almost everything IPC was doing. And at that point, they more or less, you know, brought the axe down on Scream after just 15 issues. So at that point, I was kind of out of work for a while, which didn't bother me because there was a little bit of redundancy money from IPC. I'd been there by them for about four or five years. So it, it, it was fine and dandy until really I decided I did need more work. And I knew that Ian Rimmer had moved over to Marvel UK and he knew I was on the lookout for script work and introduced me to the editor of the then quite new Transformers UK comic, who was Sheila Craner. And she just said they're looking for UK writers to uh, pad out the material they had. Mm-hmm. And they had the American comic, but because that was monthly, that didn't provide enough material for a for, you know a fortnightly or weekly comic. So they needed UK originated strip material. There was one in progress already written by Steve Parkhouse, and I was just handed a pile, a sheaf of reference and the probably the four issue American series and told to you know go away and come up with some ideas. And I presented them, you know, with one idea for a a story called The Enemy Within. That was accepted, I think, gratefully, because I don't think Sheila had many other sort of writers on the job at the time. And I think Steve was only ever sort of in for a one one off. So, you know, very quickly, I became her sort of go to writer for Transformers and you know, at the time, of course, we just, you know, I treated it like any other job. Fully mm-hmm. expecting it would be for a very limited time that there may be many other writers involved and, you know, that it would probably, like a lot of those licensed titles, last about a year or something if we were lucky. But, and boy, oh boy, did it last longer than a year. <laughs> but it's, uh, I have to also, I want to, just say one huge thank you of something that came from Transformers when I was younger. And I was probably, what, five or six, maybe a little bit older. Um, my godmother, 
bought me a uh, the, the Transformers Annual. Mm. And in that, there was a story called Victory, which you wrote. And you uh, you hold the, the key to be one of the first people who introduced me to Shakespeare because you used a, 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 a an example of Shakespeare with the character of Starscream and he's holding Megatron's half yeah. of his body. Anyway, certainly his head and says, alas, poor Megatron, I knew him well. <laughs> and that's still... In my <laughs> and that in turn is really being kind of weaned on a diet of Stan Lee, who would was always dropping in Shakespeare and mythology and kind of words I'd never heard of in a comic book and felt constrained then to look up, you know, and, and it was really that kind of thing that I brought to my writing. I didn't want to write down to kids. Uh, I, I just wanted to write the kind of stories I wanted to write and, and, you know, assume some kind of degree of they'd either get it or they'd get the sense of it or they'd ask about it. And yeah, you know, it seemed to go down well with the readers of Transformers who maybe were used to, you know, a slightly younger approach to their comics than we gave them in Transformers. I mean, I'd say that certainly something at the time I could I would look at some of the American Transformers comics against the writing you did, and it was just a much more. I mean, you, you never. The, the beauty of it is, is, and you when you reassess it as an adult as well, it's even more evident. You never spoke down to the to the reader. You always, you know, gave them something to elevate the the thinking to, uh, compared to sort of some of the comics you'd see where it was almost felt like it'd been dumbed down a bit. And that's something that that I'm certainly grateful for as somebody who read them. That it, you know, it was. Well, it, was, it educated you. You know, as I said, you showed me an idea of Shakespeare when I was uh, very young. Um, yeah, I mean, we also, you know, we, we were quite experimental with our story structure often. You know, we, we just assumed our readers would be OK with flashbacks, uh, jump forwards, yeah. backwards, time travel, you know, sort of different perspectives on the same sort of bits of story. And generally, I think, yeah, you know, everybody responded well to that. They certainly, well, they, they definitely did, and I can definitely say I, I did. When you have to, because I'm always curious, because when a writer is, like yourself is putting something together, how do you do it? How do you get the creative juices sort of flowing? Yeah, I'm, I'm fairly a start with a, you know, what used to be a blank bit of paper and is now a blank you know, sort of dot word document on your page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I mean, I always, before I ever go to script, I do my storylines and outlines and, you know, I develop a story in stages from a kind of, you know, a, a bullet pitch, you know, where it's just a few, if this happens, that happens, then into a kind of tighter outline. And only then do I really go to, you know, start scripting. But each mm-hmm. of that is probably always done, you know, without a lot. I know a lot of writers do a lot of, you know, thinking first or, you know, notes, you know, in longhand or. But, you know, I just tend to jump right in and, you know, look at that. You know, I, I've always started with characters. So, you know, right from those very first stacks of Transformers reference material that Sheila handed me, I just looked at all the, you know, really in-depth character biographies that 
what Budiansky had done for the characters mm-hmm. and thought, well, there's a character that would be good mixed with that character. And, you know, what's the worst situation you could put a character with a fear of water in, you know, and I, from those sort of basics, I used to sort of build the spine of a story at least, you know, the, and I, and I've always tended to go character first and large MacGuffin, you know, sort of big idea second. I mean, prior to getting into the, it, I'm sort of going a bit backward to this question, but prior to getting into tran- the Transformers comic and work on it, did he have any knowledge of them uh, no. as a, a product? No. None at all. And this was very early on in things. You know, I'm not, I don't know whether the cartoon show was on TV. Certainly the American comic, the first issue may have come out or first issues, but it was very, very early doors. And because I was, I suppose, at the time, you know, in my early 20s, I wasn't really paying attention to Saturday morning cartoons either. So even if it had been on, even if there were adverts for the toys, I doubt mm. I'd seen them. Now, I'm pretty sure that when I walked into the office, it was just like, OK, Transformers, whatever that is. <laughs> you know, I'm hungry for work. Give me it. And, uh, and you know, the rest really is a, a whole career based on that, you know, that moment. And... I mean, moving forward in, in your career, you, you've also worked on you worked on other Marvel publications, other other characters, and you worked on established characters. So I'm always curious to know: Did you find that a lot of constraints were put on you, or were you able to just? It's like here's the characters, go forth and do and write what you wish with them. Or it like you must stick to very specific things. This character, so say it was Peter Park, this character cannot do this, this or the. So when you did work on Terminator 2, for example, you cannot have this character doing this, this or this. Yeah, I mean, I think you're always aware of the history. You know, I was a big Marvel fan. So, you know, I understood the world and the Marvel universe and the way it worked. But I don't remember constraints as such. I just think probably they were more self-imposed. You know, an editor's not going to go for something that dramatically changes the status quo mm-hmm. as first story pitch to them you know first generally and certainly it was the way with marvel yes us you've got to prove you can do the the nuts and bolts you know this is the character this is the essence of the character tell us a a one shot a self-contained story and so a lot of the mm-hmm. stuff pitched to marvel was very much in that vein except you know strangely I came in slightly from another direction because I was doing Transformers, the US comic for them and things like Robocop and other things. And it was only gradually that I started to pick up things like I did some She-Hulk and What Ifs, Alpha Flight. And, you know, What Ifs were good because you could just throw all the cards up in the air with What If and do those stories that no otherwise no editor would approve. So what if was great fun and you you were able to dip into the Marvel history, which I loved and knew and just spin off new stories from from little from big or little incidents. So, yeah, generally it was it was an easy way in. And by the time I was writing Alpha Flight, you know, I don't think it, Alpha Flight was a big enough Marvel book yeah. to 
be too much on the radio if i'd been writing x-men or uh, wolverine it would have been a different story but alpha flight we largely just went our own merry way with it and uh and yeah you know apart from a few crossovers with infinity this or infinity that during my run we weren't really dictated to in terms of what we could or couldn't do and and yeah so in some ways i don't think i really you know had any kind of you know banging against head banging against the wall you know know, generally you know my time certainly in the kind of early mid 90s was was very easy with them and you know for many ways to me the kind of ultimate realization of everything i want for marvel which had you know i'd read as a kid brilliant and it's it's an interesting thing just to say when you were talking about what if because one of the what ifs i really loved reading actually is come from a character you created which was death's head who i as a child i was absolutely met because for me when i first learned about death as a child it's when he was in the transformers comics and you'd crossed him over and still still in my head i can see that the, the work that it would have been jeff jeff senior i think who had done the the comic cover where <laughs> uh you know there's Rodimus prime is being hunted by cyclonus and scourge and death's heads brought <laughs> into the mix as a bounty hunter to do that i mean death's head is as an adult i just find him amazing even now still i think he's a fabulous character he created so how did he come about yeah he was a bit of a happy accident really you know the transformer story i was doing was more or less a, a a sort of riff on spaghetti westerns it was you know set up in that way you know i mean obviously the mechanics are still giant robots and world conquering plans and whatever else but the the fundamentals were meant to be a spaghetti western and you know to me a, a huge ingredient of that is a bounty hunter character uh, so you know i just set out as we didn't really have a transformer that fitted that bill you know they were very much autobot or decepticon you know there were a few minor characters that possibly could have used but none of them really quite worked and so we just thought well we'll invent a bounty hunter disposable in at the beginning of the story out at the end probably destroyed so you know death said i just sketched out an idea on you know in words for for jeff as it turned out i don't think we intended jeff to draw that episode often it was just who was available at a given time and jeff just turned in this you know brilliant design for death's head i mean a lot of things were there you know the Mm -hmm. tangible weapons they were all in the script but jeff's visualization just meant all of us kind of oh maybe this could be more and so in one of those very, very rare occasions, I went back into my script once I saw the artwork and started adding, I suppose, more colour to him in terms of his personality, the verbal tics, the, you know, the, the, the added layers that sort of became his character. And by the end of the story, we just knew, you know, we couldn't just let him go. So at that point, slightly retroactively, we, you know, sort of we need to create him as a Marvel character. Otherwise, you know, we can't 
use him anymore, really. So at that point, we did a quick one page story called High Noon Tech Text, which, you know, quickly was dropped in as a kind of house ad strip into all sorts of Marvel titles. And, you know, in the meantime, in the background, the copyright, you know, stuff was going through the the works and just gradually, you know, he became a Marvel character and we knew we had to, even though we loved using him, Transformers, moving, move him out of Transformers into his own title, ultimately. <laughs> and I do remember the high new text. There's been the, the little piece just introducing him. But I also love the fact with Deathhead that you crossed him into all different things as well. So it wasn't like he just stayed you know, he got his own story, his own comic book, but also the fact that, you know, he crossed him into things sometimes like Doctor Who, that he was involved in that, uh, that you had him doing the crossover. It was the crossover things where he got involved with, you know, the more established Marvel characters uh, like Iron Man. And I just I just loved that. So, you know, looking over it and it just showed what a brilliant character he created because he could put him into all these different scenarios with different characters and he worked. brilliantly i mean you know he's one of those characters who technically has no redeeming features you know you're supposed to be able to (laughs) find some kind of empathy or you know for the you know for the main character but he doesn't he's such a sort of constant you know it, it made for some interesting storytelling and it just meant that guest stars seemed to work very well with him because he just is so then you've just got the interest of how the doctor or um iron man of 2020 or the fantastic four react to him he stays the same and they sort of bounce around him and i think that was the appeal of the character to us and also to other creators who used him like uh, walt simonson who then you know did a couple of covers for us and then dropped him into fantastic four during his run on the book so you know it was it was a happy happy accident like i said i think over the years we we sort of refined him into a lasting character and and one that is still in marvel comics today which is very gratifying to see that i mean he is he's absolutely a brilliant creation and he's as you said he's one that always uh you know you i always like to see what can be done with him and as you said it's how could how would you, could I best put it to make in relation to what you said for myself? You put him into a situation, and as you said, the people around him react, deal with him. He he just plows his own. <laughs> that's the idea, and you know, sort of, you know, I think that's the thing that you know you've got to remember about Death's Head is he's there are no real sort of shades of grey with him. He just he does. The, the things his way and it's always the same but yes circumstances and the other characters dictate how a story goes you know there's no you know the big thing in marvel you know when we were having our kind of lectures on what a marvel comic book is revolved around conflict you know that a character mm-hmm. must face some kind of conflict in a given 22 pages or whatever they must have to make a a big decision, a moral decision, an emotional decision. But with Death's Head, that doesn't really apply. You know, he may pay lip service to it or be confronted by issues such as that, but he just doesn't. And so in many ways, he was almost that 
that kind of British style of Marvel character. You know, the Brits at the time, certainly in the 80s, had that kind of reputation for bringing a slightly sort of different worldview to superheroes and 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 the established Marvel or DC characters. And I think Death's Head comes out of that. He's more kind of 2000 AD than than Marvel, really. You know, it, it, he's got few, if any, redeeming features, but you kind of love him. You could definitely see him, or it'd be very interesting to see him going toe-to-toe with someone like Dredd. <laughs> to yeah. see how. You know, Dredd's a good example. Dredd is very unbending, unchanging, you know, and, you know, he just is the law, and that's about the, the end of it. You know, there may be some wobbles, but generally he, he steers, again, like Death said, a very sort of direct, straight path. You mentioned about the something that I've that you know I found interesting. Which you, you know, it was almost like happy coincidence that Jeff did the artwork for that one. How much say did you get, or do you get, on the people who you work with, who were working around with to, to produce things? And obviously, that would probably change as an editor. So, both as a writer and editor, what's the? Yeah, I mean, on Transformers, like I say, it was very much predicated by who was available you know we had a weekly schedule you know the luxury of having an artist do four parts of a story were rare you know in a row so we had to chop and change you know sometimes there were ones like when we did target 2006 there was a specific part of that that we all thought was jeff's jeff seniors just Mm. because he did kinetic exciting action almost better than almost any of the other artists we had at the time but no often during those days there was no choosing but you know when latterly i was able to pick an artist you know so when it came to do dragon's claws you know everybody wanted jeff to do it you know i don't there was you know anybody else in the running for it he was the guy we wanted to launch this, you know, US format line of Marvel UK comics with. But now, you know, still I work with Jeff, you know, whenever I can. But yeah, you know, I mean, it's I I suppose it depends. You know, these days you do tend to kind of team up with an artist a lot more than you used to. But, you know, still often I, you know, I write things and I write them not knowing who they're going to be drawn by. I uh, I just when you mentioned Target 2006, I always have a lovely memory of that from when I was younger, which was I was going to hold it with my parents uh, to Germany, which is where some of my family is from, uh, and I can only assume my parents were like, how do we keep this child quiet on the plane for? <laughs> <laughs> they buy me Transformers comic, and it was the Target 2006, and by God, that's uh, <laughs> yeah, I take my hat off to both you and Jeff because that's one hell of a read, and it's a read that you can go back to again and again, even now. It's just been a very nice layered thing to read, and even though you have, or I had obviously the knowledge of the comic, yeah, sorry, the the toy line, and seeing the cartoons, it's what else you 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 did with that that made it you know, interesting, really sticking a, a person's mind. It was interesting when you said about it being a week, you know, you get the people together and it's a weekly product. 
did you ever have times where things would go wrong? Maybe and you're like, oh God, you know, I've got to <laughs> get it ready. You know, I mean, we certainly had deadline crunches, you know, but we, you know, obviously we had a breather whenever there was US reprint material, so we could, you know, start to do stories ahead, get artwork in. But yeah, we had a few sort of crunches that, you know, I seem to remember one episode um, that Dan Reed was drawing was very late and he was living in France and had to bring the artwork physically over to get, you know, literally to make the deadline. And I think the last episode of Legacy of Unicron was more or less drawn in-house by Brian Hitch and Jeff Senior. Mm-hmm. Um, as again, we were we were up against it, and you know, each page as it was finished was straight off to be lettered, coloured, and you know, and then colour separated as was the way it was then. So, yeah, it was it was fairly hand to mouth sometimes, but often we tried just like I say to build up while we were on reprint a, a stash of of originated strips and when it came to looking at something like target 2006 which has a level of influence from the film did you at the time get a chance to see the film or was that something that you would not because i know it probably wouldn't have been something that would have been maybe your exact area of interest to watch you sound like you didn't see the cartoon and things no i we, I, we saw the film but we saw the film after we'd we, you know, we did target 2006 from a draft of the script we had. Mm-hmm. You know, that was pretty much it. Plus, obviously, what the carry, who the characters were. But you know, target 2006 was done way ahead of the movie actually, which yeah. was. But you know, did we go and see it? Yeah, we did. You know, and I loved it. And you know, it was. I think it was my first, or a lot of our first exposure to that kind of Japanese anime style of. Mm-hmm cartoon and so you know we were blown away and it very much became the inspiration for many stories that followed on from target 2006 brilliant i mean and you are certainly when you you look at it as a child you see it differently to when you look at it as an adult because you see themes in it you're thinking wow you know this is quite an advanced thing for a child to watch i know certainly you always hear people of my age of around my age saying it's probably one of the most traumatic things <laughs> the first ever saw because all these cats are just getting blown away. <laughs> I know, it was fairly brutal, you know, when you look back at it now. And but you know, again, we just we were sure this is really what kids wanted to read. And you know, because they were robots, we had that much more latitude mm-hmm. for that kind of somewhat more extreme action violence whatever i think if these had been human beings we would have had to neuter it a lot but robots well you know you know they get their heads knocked off it's not the biggest deal in the world so (laughs) we were lucky in that respect that you know we were allowed and also you know just we i think we were lucky that hasbro uk seemed quite happy with everything we were doing and you know never said uh do you need do you maybe want to tone this down a bit? So, yeah, we were genuinely lucky. I think, you know, we just assume our kids are kind of a little more resilient here in the UK, or did back then. 
Well, I think it's probably. I think the film probably had worked on making a lot of children more resilient after they'd yeah. <laughs> seen it. Um, looking across, and it's a bit of a difficult one to ask this, but looking across all the things you worked on, which I know is like a hell of a question to ask, do you have a favourite character that you've you've written for, and do you have a favourite character you've either killed off or resurrected? Um, you know, I think. Death's Head will always be, you know, because I co-created him with Jeff, I always feel very paternal about the character. And, you know, he would be right up there with the, so, you know, the characters that I think I've made a mark with and whatever. So, you know, Death's Head, definitely. But, you know, I've enjoyed more or less everything from the sort of the obscure to the the sort of main characters I've written. And, you know, often with Transformers, I found that the most interesting ones were the minor characters that you could build into something they maybe weren't in their other appearances or in their little biography things that came with them. So, you know, I, I think, you know, there's there's probably a few and killed off characters. I think I've killed off a lot of characters. You know, I was kind of in Transformers for wholesale wiping out characters you know i've obviously enjoyed writing grimlock in transformers he will always be a favorite of mine and you know every time i've got to you know tackle up a spider-man or a wolverine it's a big kick for me you know just because again they were such formative characters for me and you know recently uh with doing the vigilant for rebellion you know, again, it was going back to the characters I'd read even before Marvel and trying to play around in those, in that world as well as a writer. So that was very gratifying. Excellent. And I, I mean, I did like the fact that you wrote Grimlock to have intelligence as opposed to this way he was originally sort of portrayed as being, well, for one for better better word stupid but you actually gave him depth you know you you know he just wasn't very interesting to me as a a dumb character you know and very early on we you know we had the dinobots they sort of they we knew they were disappeared out of the u.s strip for the foreseeable future so we had them as the spine of our uk stories uh, which did, wouldn't impact too much on what the US stories were doing. So I think that was part of the reason that the Dinobots just had to be more interesting than they were in the cartoon show or even maybe in the Marvel US comic. Mm. No, that, that, I mean, it was just a brilliant way of doing it uh, and certainly giving them, well, you gave them their own sort of, life so to speak compared to just like the tag on the characters they'd maybe been been originally portrayed as shall we say um we met uh at a convention uh in 2019 i think it was in london um what has your general experience of conventions been yeah, generally very good you know i mean we live you know we work and in isolation and certainly back in the day you very you very rarely had interaction with actual readers. You know, readers' letters was about the mm-hmm. the limit of it. Very occasionally, I remember doing some store signings. Certainly, when we launched D 
Death's Head and Dragon's Claws. We did a little tour of the comic shops, such as they were back then. Um, and often nostalgia and comics in Birmingham would was very big on having signings and stuff. But generally, you know, we didn't have that much feedback from live fans, as it were. So I really like the conventions. I, I like meeting people. I like chatting. I like, you know, just getting feedback from people on, you know, what they think of the stories, what, you know, what works, what doesn't. So, yeah, generally, I mean, yes, you can have, you know, sometimes, you know, probably not just in comics, the fans can be, you know, a little sort of full on or intense or, you know, sometimes opinionated about your stories and, you know, not always in a good way. But, you know, those are that's the sort of the, you know, the the smaller portion of conventions and signings. And generally, yeah, you know, especially the Transformers ones, which, again, the fans can be very passionate and very divided about, you know, comic or cartoon toys or comic or you know but generally you know you just get that these people love you know the product the the whole thing and what you're doing hopefully and yeah it's it's good to get live you know sort of response to what you're doing where where you'll hear the millionth time the sort of thing i would say to which is you were my childhood (laughs) but you know generally and especially as I've got, you know, older, it's I just generally feel old when people in their forties come up and say, "Oh yeah, I was I was five when I was reading your stuff," which does make me feel very old. But uh, you know, but no, it's all good, and you know, generally I say everyone behaves themselves, and 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 it's just generally a good experience. And and like I say, I've become very fond of the Transformers conventions, which can be you know, very social, social and sociable, you know, outside of the convention itself, just in terms of, you know, a drink afterwards in the bar or whatever. So, you know, I really like the convention experience and just getting out there, really. Well, I, I can say this and I mean this sincerely, you don't look old, so don't don't <laughs> worry about that at all. Um, you mentioned Transformers conventions, because I think when we met, it was at a London convention, like a film and comic on convention. What was BotCon like? Because I never was able to attend one. Yeah, BotCon was great. I mean, the American convention was, you know, an eye opener at the time for myself and Andrew Wildman when we went over to our first. You know, we had no idea there was a, a Transformers fandom still. Yeah, or if there, you know, I don't know whether we knew there was one that had endured, but there it was. And, you know, hundreds of people turning up and voice actors and other guests from the toy company. And, and we were, you know, we were wowed by it. And I loved BotCon and, you know, whatever it became afterwards, TFCC or something like that. But, you know, (laughs) no, but, you know, I mean, yeah, it, it's always been very good, and you know, you know, you just meet interesting people, and you know, we got to meet so many of the voice actors, and you know, Vince DiCola and Stan Bush, who'd done the music for Transformers the movie, and just all these great people who've become, you know, over the years friends through sort of repeat meetings at these conventions. 
and you know just generally they're just such a nice bunch of people uh, now I have to ask if this has ever happened because you go into something like BotCon which is the big Transformers stuff has anyone ever asked you to sign a body part to get a tattoo <laughs> people have presented limbs let's put it that way to get sort of signatures on but it's it's really not the easiest thing in the world anyway and presumably somebody has to wash at a certain point so no no generally that's that's low to no thankfully <laughs> yeah because i've heard of people where they're like sign my leg sign my arm whatever yeah and then they get it tattooed it yeah but well it's hey it shows the love for your work and uh that's cannot be a bad thing. Um, I wanted to ask the question on this. Uh, it's one what I have been curious about. How did uh, you writing as Chris Francis come about? What was the story behind that? Well, Chris, Chris, well, Christopher and Francis are my middle names. And if yep. I needed a pseudonym, that was what I used. And generally I used it because there was a general frowning in Marvel about editors writing for their own book so right. there should they and rightly there should be a division between an editor and the writer on a title but on the odd occasion where i was in charge of say a transformers annual and the scripts you know often richard starkings used to you know edit my scripts and be that kind of editor fill that kind of editor role when I was writing and editing but occasionally it didn't and if it required an editorial credit I just used to drop Chris Francis in there so it didn't look quite so me 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 me, me through the whole sort of book or whatever good th- yeah I like it good thinking it's a good way of doing it actually uh so you've done all this brilliant writing you've you've been an editor but you were also in the guinness book of records which was uh, was in 2011 i think in my memory serves me where you were in for this is me having to go off my memory um was it most contributions to a comic book and the fastest production of a comic book is that i don't know i mean we were all involved in this um at one of um Mark Miller's conventions, they did a, uh, you know, do a comic book in three, uh, one day or something like that. And I was just one of the writers who pitched into that. It was one of his Kapow conventions in London. He did two or three of those. And yes, one of them was to, you know, do this record breaking turnaround of a comic book. So I just scripted a few of the pages from Mark's uh outline you know along with many other writers and mm-hmm. you know, artists and yeah the whole thing happened over a i think 24 hour period the actual production of this comic book it was was it a very stressful experience or was it something that wasn't too bad to do you know i mean sometimes a little bit of deadline stress helps in terms of you know the creativity and getting it done so, no, you know, I did my bit fairly quickly mm-hmm. and got out of there. So you've got <laughs> you've got fun memories of it. That's the main thing. Yeah, no, no, it, was, it was good fun. Good thing to be involved in. Good, good. Good, good. Because I can, all I kept thinking is for the, the sort of time constraints, would it be all these things for you? Just like, 
I mean, we had the spine of the story anyway, so it was only a matter matter of breaking it up into some panels and adding some 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 speech balloons and captions. So it wasn't the biggest ask in the world. Good, good. So I think we met. I'm gonna going off my memory. It would have been 2019 when we met around that time, and you. Uh, you were basically, I mean, you, you and Jeff did something that's phenomenal, which is you created your own company, which is the Forged by Fire Productions, um, and it was for writing your own comic book. Um, what was the process behind doing that, and how difficult was it? Yeah, I mean, it was difficult. Um, you know, we, we very much wanted to do something self-published that was ours, that you know, was very much, you know, what we wanted to do rather than what somebody else thought was, you know, going to sell or whatever. So, you know, we, we sat down, and you know, when we had some time and just dreamed up the scenario for To the Death, which is sort of based mm-hmm. on, yep. a bit on the, in broad strokes, Dragon's Claws. It's got a little bit of that vibe to it and, you know, there's a lot of our other kind of greatest hits rolled into To the Death. But we just really wanted to be able to tell a story that, you know, was ours completely and rolled out at its own pace. And it filled however long it it filled the story. You know, we looked at it like, well, this is a movie. So it's as long as it is. And <laughs> I wrote it almost like a screenplay originally jeff drew it all in sort of single sort of rectangular frames and originally we published it online so it was published digitally first and then we broke it down later into a 10 issue kind of prestige format maxi series and so yeah it ended up quite a lot of pages in the end something like 450 odd pages but, you know, very good to do and good to have something that, you know, we've out of that, we spawned another character called Killer Toa, who we're doing some stuff with um, in sort of in shift and in other places. So, yeah, you know, it, it was just good to do something that was ours, that we controlled, that, you know, was that you know would rise or fall on our own efforts you know rather than somebody else's and yeah overall brilliant experience but hard work and even harder work because we were self-publishing to get it into the places like comic stores (laughs) sell it for us so you know it, it was it was great but very hard work and you know kind of hard to you know make a living out you're putting so much of your time into that up front. Mm-hmm. What, what would, sorry, sorry, sorry. No, but overall, you know, we're really pleased with the end product and the fact that, you know, we got to, you know, 10 issues and, you know, they're now in nice sort of slip cases. So, mm-hmm. you know, it just looks, you know, like a good body of work. Well, I, I really enjoyed it, uh, and it's a really, really good, enjoyable read. Um, so if you were to give advice to anyone who wanted to start their own sort of – to do something of that sort, what would you say? Uh, I would say maybe think a little smaller than we did. 
you know, the, it was it was great to do this massive thing, but somewhat unwieldy in terms of, you know, when you come to bring it out. You know, I think if we did it again, Jeff and I, we would do a more contained one or two issues or something or, you know, do it, maybe do it, you know, sort of crowdfunded in some way. Uh, because you know you spend so much time on the logistics sometimes you 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 lose the time on the that you would up put into the creativity because there's so much else to deal with on it so i think we might just do it on a smaller scale next time and you know maybe sort of fund it first and then publish which you know would probably make you know just be, do wonders for our sanity overall I think definitely. I mean, if you were to put it up for crowdfunding, trust me, I'd be one of the first people to try and get something in there for it. I can definitely say that with certainty. I think you'd find a huge positive response from the fan base, actually, to do something like that. Um, certainly, like crowdfunding of things, it's the thing that people feel the ownership, don't, not not ownership, but they feel involvement, don't they? And what a bit, you know, that feeling of involvement and in what somebody's done. So, yeah, I think that could be uh, certainly. I couldn't fund the whole thing, but I definitely put yeah. some money down. Yes. Um, I'm going to ask one question I would like to know is, what do you enjoy reading? Well, I mean, you know, reading, I mean, I read books, I read other comics, but, you know, fiction-wise, I tend to not read an awful lot of sci-fi, strangely. You know, I'm, I'm much more a kind of hard-boiled crime reader, you know, private eyes, kind of noir stuff. You know, I've just I've just read, finished reading uh, Robbie Morrison's book, Edge of the Grave, which is a crime novel set in 1930s Glasgow. Brilliant. You know, perfectly up my street in terms of, you know, that sort of gritty, hard edge crime thriller that I like. You know, but I read a lot of you know, I'm a big fan of the um, the Lee Child Reacher books. Yeah. Yeah. I read a lot of Stephen King, you know, and just generally i you know i'm always reading and comics wise you know i still as much as possible keep abreast of what's happening in you know sort of marvel and the independent scene you know i've recently been reading gideon falls which i really really enjoyed you know so you know i i try as much as time permits to kind of mm-hmm. keep up with my comic reading but i like most people i think i have a kind of growing pile of things that i've bought and haven't yet got around to read unfortunately that's a feeling i know all too well uh when you mentioned stephen king up interest what's your favorite stephen king novel mm, that's a good question i mean i think some of the you know probably you know going back i i would say sort of salem's lot and some of those you know sort of early ones like the shining and you know you know, ones like, you know, I really liked Christine and Cujo and some of those ones that may be less. But, you know, I love I, I, the the Backman books I always thought were really good. Yeah. His Backman ones, they were sometimes leaner and meaner than his own, you know, sort of self-pen name ones. Uh, so, you know, I really enjoyed, you know, I, I think The Running Man is a brilliant book. You know, it, yeah. not, not such a good film, but the book was brilliant and brilliantly structured in as much as it the chapters count down from high to low and get progressively shorter 
as you go through the book, which almost subliminally creates a pace as you read it. Very, very clever. And, you know, I think I admire things like that. I mean, yeah, because just when you said Running Man, because obviously for a lot of people, their first, uh, you know, exposure to Running Man would have been the film. So the first knowledge I ever had of it was the film. But when I read the book, because it's markedly different, I was like, wow, you know, if they actually, and there were rumors they're looking to do it as a film, more loyal to to what the book was. uh, I think that could be really interesting to see. And looking at King, I also, on his work, really like Thinner. Yes, Thinner's very good. And it was a that was another one where it's a very interesting adaptation of it. But thinner as a read, it's one that I can go back to quite a lot. You know, I've I've liked a few others. You know, Mister Mercedes is very good. Cell, mm. very good. And um, I enjoyed uh, oh, what's the one they adapted recently? Um, it, it. No, no. Um, uh, cracky. <laughs> uh, Tower. Sorry. Dark Tower, maybe? No, no, no. It was um, it, it, the character from Mr. Mercedes is sort of kind of rolls on into it. It was uh, about an eight part. Anyway, it will come back to me, but that was. <laughs> no, it's, it's that sort of stuff. And it's always interesting just to see what people who work as writers, what sort of things they also like, like to look at doing in. The, the, a question I always like to also ask people is what sort of music are you into? Yeah, I mean, you know, given my age, when I was really into music, it was very much the late 70s, early 80s. And so I, I was kind of, I suppose, you know, punk and new wave and two-tone were the things that fired me once, you know, I was of an age that I appreciated mm-hmm. music. But you know, latterly, I've become much broader in my tastes. And, you know, I like a lot of, you know, blues music and, uh, you know, that kind of real, especially that kind of really raw sort of what they call back porch blues, which is just his guitar kind of thing. So, you know, I mean, all sorts. And I'm, I'm, you know, become a lot broader, I think, in my musical tastes as, as, you know, I've got older and, and less of a, you know, just if it is, if it's more than, you know, sort of three energetic minutes, I'm bored, you know, I'm <laughs> more forgiving now for, and, you know, just exploring and finding new things. You know, I've recently got very into the Velvet Underground, which I'd never really listened to as a younger person, mm-hmm. really appreciate now. And on a musical front, what would you say the best gig you've ever been to is? that's hard i mean i used to again a lot of the gigs i went to were were that new wave era of of gigs but possibly the two standouts for me are i saw bruce springsteen at wembley stadium and that was utterly incredible you know around the time of kind of born in the usa time and utterly amazing concert that was and you know on a smaller scale I once saw the undertones uh, at the Hammersmith Palais, and that was an amazing gig where they literally ran out of songs. They had no more songs. (laughs) And, you know, everyone's cheering for them to to do more. And they just said, well, as long as you don't mind us doing the same ones over again. And it was just a brilliant gig. Because, like, for me, the the best 
gig I've been to that you know still will always stick in the memories. I've seen Paul McCartney twice, and that is something I saw, saw my dad. So there's obviously the, the link of seeing that with my dad, but also just whether you like him or not, you know, it's a Beatle, it's Paul McCartney. It was amazing. I mean, yeah, it's the best I've ever been to. On a smaller scale of one of the best gigs I ever went to is, do you ever remember or do you know who Neil Innes was? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the Bonzo do Duda band, but we saw him when it was the Ruttles. Yes. Uh, and I actually interviewed him just before that, that concert, which unfortunately you know, since he passed, my interview with him was probably one of the last interviews he ever did. Oh. But that was phenomenal to yeah. see. I mean, just an amazing thing. And you were only in a small, uh, you know, venue to see it, but it absolutely just. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the smaller ones are the better ones. Yeah. He blew the socks off. And I've actually made some, you know, good friends with, you know, well, I was friendly with him, but also people he, he worked with that I got to know through that, which is, is nice. You made some lifelong friends from that. But, yeah, you do see some interesting stuff. Um, I, I would also just love to ask the question of what are you working on now? What's what's the, the plans for 2021 and beyond, uh, Simon? You know, I mean, I'm working on a few things. I mean, recent stuff has been things like Transformers 84 for IDW and The Vigilant for Rebellion. And Before I forget, can I just say thank you for that? <laughs> Transformers 84, because, yeah, that was, wow. Yeah, that I mean, was a really good. That was real fun to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful IDW will want to do some more in that, you know, vein as we roll forwards. But, you know, mostly at the moment, um, I'm working on some other stuff for Rebellion, which is very nice. I'm very enjoying being part of their kind of reinvention of all these classic British heroes. Um, I am uh, working on a couple of games at the moment. Games actually is strangely a large chunk of my work at the moment. And, yeah, a few other bits and pieces that I can't kind of talk about because they're, they're still too early to announce but yeah you know strangely games is 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 filling a lot of my time and because they're so kind of long term you know obviously earth wars transformers earth wars is just something i keep contributing to mm-hmm. on a basis but you know there's some other stuff i'm working on now that probably won't come out for a year two years or something so it's a strange way but you know i'm really enjoying it's very collaborative and very team-led so that's brilliant been great fun to do and you know keep you know plugging away at sort of some new killer toa and hopefully some more to the death stuff so yeah you know lots going on at the moment good good very good and Obviously, we've all been living under the the impact of the COVID nineteen uh, uh, pandemic, uh, as you and I discussed earlier. I unfortunately have long COVID, so I can you know recognise there's been an impact there. Um, what sort of impact has it had on you? And do you think that it might have any sort of impact on your future work? Is it a theme you could maybe work into something? Well, maybe. I mean, I don't know. You know. Will it impact on something I do? I don't know. I mean, you know, 
personally, it hasn't affected me much. You know, obviously, I, the same restrictions that have applied to everyone, really. But, you know, it hasn't impacted in as much as I work from home anyway. So, you know, that's what I've continued doing. You know, initially, may have dropped off a bit, but very quickly that kind of bounced back. So, you know, strangely, it hasn't that it's been a fairly negligible impact, you know, and thankfully health wise and and sanity wise, uh, you know, I hope <clears throat> I'm doing OK. So, no, you know, strangely, it hasn't impacted that much. And, you know, I think it's it's a funny thing. I'm sure people who write, you know, contemporary novels will have to deal with it. But in what I write, probably not. You know, it, it probably will be something that unless I do it allegorically and, you know, something in a story that, you know, is COVID by another name. But I can't see that it is going to hit anything I'm currently working on. Well, maybe one for the future. Who knows? <laughs> so I always like to ask Every, uh, people when i'm interviewing them if you could produce anything or you could uh, you could make anything any sort of storyline anything like uh, that sort what would you do uh, you know i mean i dabble a bit in film writing you know i work with another writer mark salisbury who's a film journalist and we we put together some scripts and often where we tend to end up is squarely in the horror genre that seems to sort of suit us. So I guess, you know, I would, you know, make one of these horror movie scripts. So, you know, we've had little sniffs of interest or whatever, but I would just love to see something we've written make the cinema screen. I think that would do me whatever the film product is. Be lovely to actually get something on the big screen as opposed to the small screen. Well, I think that is a. I think that's probably the best place we can hit. we could sort of end our conversation. I think that would be brilliant if you could get something on the big screen. And as I said earlier about the comic front, if you ever need a big crowdfunding, I will happily contribute something most yeah. happily. We shall definitely, uh, you know, look in that direction in the next year or so. I think. Okay. Well. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Simon, and I wish you continued health and happiness with the future. Well, pleasure, and I wish you better from your long COVID as soon as possible. Thank you very much.